Hi, this is Kendra Nielsen-Miles. I am a certified health education specialist and yoga instructor, and this is the Restored Wellness Podcast. Restored Wellness is a podcast that brings you information and resources for restoring function, hope, and patient empowerment. Our focus is on chronic pain, fatigue, and other chronic, often invisible medical conditions. We have a specific interest in hypermobility disorders and related conditions, movement, nutrition, and mind-body strategies for living well. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Restored Wellness Podcast. I'm Kendra Nielsen-Miles, and I am here with Dr. Linda Bluestein again. And we are talking about a topic that is near and dear to Dr. Bluestein's heart. It's about the hypermobile dancer and at-risk athletic populations. And she's done quite a bit of work in speaking, research, and writing on this topic, as well as she's a former dancer. And I would love to hear more about your experience, what you've learned, and why this topic is such an important topic to you. I would love to hear, you know, this, this whole idea of um, dealing with at-risk, I didn't really know exactly how to phrase it, but I, the way that I think about it is at-risk, at-risk athletic communities, but it's also populations of people because some people might not necessarily identify with being athletic. I don't know that I necessarily did, but I certainly was a dancer and I did gymnastics and I guess I was also quote unquote an at-risk population too, doing these certain, you know, types of athletic endeavors, uh, mostly because I liked it, but also because that was kind of what I was good at. I was not great at team sports because I couldn't see, which is sometimes common in hypermobility, not always. Um, I didn't have the best coordination and hand-eye control, but I did very well by myself and I loved feeling of movement and I was flexible. Um, (laughs) At the time, I didn't know that I was hypermobile. I wasn't as flexible as my other friend or my best friend Anne at the time, but um, you know, I loved to dance and I spent hours in my living room and uh, always wanted to be a ballet dancer and also did gymnastics until I was told I was too tall. And um, uh, what I did, so I think in a lot of ways, because I didn't excel exactly, I think it somewhat helped my joints um, from damage. But I would love to hear more about your research and what you've done and your presentations, um, because I know you've presented to a few different communities and dance populations and companies. Um, So tell me more about what you found and what you've discovered and your background too. So um, yeah, thank you, Kendra, for giving me the opportunity to to chat. I always enjoy getting to visit with you about our common interest in helping people that have Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and related disorders and getting information out to them to help them live a better quality of life. And it's exciting to now be able to share information that I'm also gaining for my patient population as well. And um, as you're alluding to, there's definitely a very high percentage of people in my clinic that have a history of having danced or done gymnastics or, you know, things of that sort. Um, It's interesting, when I first started doing my research on hypermobility disorders. I'm gonna use that as an umbrella term for now. I think it's helpful for people to get information so that they can get a better grasp as to how to treat their body in a way such that they can, whether it's dance or gymnastics, and and for the purpose of the podcast, I might often refer to dance, um, but I'm gonna be using that as kind of the, um, the, the main group of people that might be listening, but certainly there's gonna be, rather than saying, dancers and gymnasts and you know each time so we're gonna use that yeah we're gonna so so if you're a gymnast you just substitute the word gymnast for dancer you know if you're a circus performer 
a rhythmic gymnast or, or whatever. But yeah. um, joint hypermobility is very, very important for these people because they're often drawn to these things because they are more flexible. So they, like as you alluded to, they can succeed at gymnastics, at dance, um, at cheerleading, and uh, various other sports. In fact, even sometimes for musicians, if they're hypermobile, they are more successful because of their ways that they're able to manipulate things like their hands. They can reach things. Right, right. So um, you're right. There's several different populations that we need to consider being at risk. There are other athletic populations as well. And so when we think about those populations, it's very helpful to let them know what is joint hypermobility and what are the things that go into that and what does it mean to be flexible in a good way and what does it mean to be maybe flexible in a way that is not good, stretching to the point where you're stre stretching your joint capsule and potentially risking tearing your labrum and your hip, that's not good. I think a lot of times the, the hypermobility and flexibility are viewed as one and the same and they're not necessarily, you can be flexible without being hypermobile and you can be hypermobile without being flexible and being yes. stiff. So yes. I think understanding yes. what that means and the difference and then also what to look for, like you said, so that people can understand how to protect themselves. So you want to be, it's important to be, um, a, a word that I like is supple. That you, you, know, you want your muscles to be supple, you want to um, be able to have fluid movements, you want to be uh, using your body in a way such that you are, especially once people have been in pain for a while, oftentimes they stop moving certain parts of their body and they can start to get contractions and things like that. But you want to be, as a dancer, it's very important to be supple. So I think a lot of dancers would be able to relate to that term. Um, and so it's important to be stretching in when they're when you're stretching in particular it's important to be thinking about if i'm doing this particular stretch i love it when i give talks and i look around the room and i see people in their all of their weird funky dance positions because of course you're in a dance studio they're on the floor and they're flopped into whatever position and they're stretching and, as much as possible yes but i but i think and i look at them and i think now if you were to say to yourself what am I stretching here? I think a lot of times they wouldn't really know. You know, I don't think they necessarily, it's not, it's not enough of an intentional thing. So I think becoming, even though you might think that dancers are very aware of their body, in a lot of ways they're not actually. So I think that it's important to start paying attention to those things and to realize that, um, yes, you want to make, you want to be as flexible as you can be safely but then being aware of hypermobility in certain things. And one of the areas that I think is a really kind of the easiest place probably to understand this is in knees. So if you look at the knee, a straight knee is going to be, you know, just straight up and down. And some people, if you have super bulky legs, maybe you can't even straighten your knee all the way. But people who have hypermobile knees, they have what we call back knee. So their knees go backwards. I, I posted on uh, Facebook the other day some videos of Misty Copeland because she has very, very hypermobile knees. And she recorded a YouTube video that I really like because if you look at the YouTube video and you see when she has her leg up in the air, she can have her leg so straight that she has her knee bending backwards, the opposite direction, probably 20 degrees, maybe even 22 degrees, something like that, I'm guessing. But when she's dancing on that leg, she controls that hypermobility so it's not that crazy back knee position, which is- Biomechanically helps support her body. Exactly, exactly. But from the standpoint of energy, 
it's actually easier to be on your knee completely straight and have it locked in position. So if the bones of your knee allow you to go that far back, that's your lowest energy position. So it requires a lot of muscle in order to work in a non-hyper-extended, non-hypermobile knee position. It's very hard to explain that to dancers because um, you know a little bit of hyperextension actually makes for a prettier line, like when the leg is in the air. Yeah. But there's there's a fine line between you know being four or five degrees hyperextended versus being twenty. You know. So um, in this particular video, I really like it because you can see how crazy hyperextended her knees are. So the knee to me is an area that's really quite easy to understand and quite easy to visualize. And, um, and also is one that is a, an area that a lot of dancers and athletes have problems with. There's a lot of injuries related to knees. And in dancers, lower extremities are definitely by far the most common site for injuries. So if I'm understanding you correctly, and for somebody that's like, wait a minute, what are you, what are you talking about? This is my life. Like you're telling me that the way that I position my knees and what I've been glorified and, and everything that I thought was good about what I am doing in me is not right. So basically what you're saying is there's a way to dance specifically, and we can then, you know, cat spin it to other athlete, athletics if you will, or even yoga. But some of the things that have been glorified, or I, I call them the lines, you know, the lines, the things that make for the pretty pictures, right. athletics, are honest, a way that it's like a hyperextended knee. It just makes a very pretty line, whether it's in dance or even, you know, yoga with bending your, your neck back and your, and your back back. You know, it makes for a prettier picture. You get a lot more likes on that picture. But what happens is, based upon what you're saying, and this also can go not just from the knees, but also from different parts of the body that are bending, uh, contorting, if you will, is that when it goes so far that it's hyperextending past the point that is a safe and normal range of motion, instead of being, you know, within and proper biomechanically supporting itself, it's basically bone on bone. And right. so when you go so far past a certain extension that is with not within a normal range, you basically have bone on bone. And that, what that does is it causes little micro tears, little injuries to the tendons, and then basically the force, the energy that is required from your muscles to then do whatever you are doing at that moment, whether it's dance, yoga, you know, another sport, um, gymnastics, it requires more force, more effort for your muscles to essentially, you know, propel your body in whatever manner in that, from that position. So the more hyperextended it is, even though it might seem like this is this great thing that you can do and you can tour your body, it actually requires more effort and more energy for your body to maneuver itself in a proper manner to do the other things that you want to do. Right. right. could cause injury because you're basically have bone on bone versus the body supporting itself the way that it's supposed to biomechanically. Right. And biomechanically, you have the bones connecting to each other in a way that they're not meant to connect. And you also have the ligaments and the tendons that instead of, you're exactly right, that it requires more, more energy. Our bones, our alignment, our, the whole joint is not meant to go backwards. So if you have a situation in which it is going backwards, that puts all kinds of strain on all of those connective tissues and causes exactly microtrauma. And, you know, oftentimes we think with things like connective tissue disorders, like Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and related disorders, we often think of the subluxations and the dislocations as being 
kind of one of the more major problems, but in reality, it's actually the micro trauma. It's the little tears that happen here and there in the tendons and people end up with a lot of what we call tendinopathies. So it's not tendinitis because tendinitis is like acute inflammation of a tendon, but it's tendinopathies. So these people often will end up with kind of chronic pain related to those tendons working in a way that, that our bodies are just really not meant to be working. And it puts all that strain and exactly what you said, yeah, the micro tears and, and all that, definitely. I think that goes along with not just athletes, is that the typical person that has hypermobility, a known phenomenon, if you will, whether or not they have hypermobility related to a type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobility from Marfan syndrome or hypermobility related to another condition or from whatever the cause, hypermobility in general, we have more fatigue. And because of the lack of uh, support or the more support that we require our muscles to have or to use to support our joints, the more fatigue we get. So basically what I'm saying is that the muscles, even from a person that's not necessarily athletic or doing one of these, you know, dance or yoga or gymnastics, that the normal average person with hypermobility, their muscles are required to do almost twice as much effort as a normal person because the looseness of the joints. So we have, they have to do compensate, they have to do overtime, they have to do double the work, they compensate for what is not being done from the connective tissues and the tendons and ligaments to help support the joints. So when the muscles are weak and you don't have this athletic background from whatever it is, it's almost even I'd say in quadruple. I mean, it's just they, you don't have the strength of the muscles to help support and compensate from the tissues. So you have almost, you know, triple, quadruple the laxity because you've got the laxity from the connective tissues and the tendons and ligaments. You've got the looseness from the hypermobility in the joints. And then you've got no, not a whole lot of muscle to help support and compensate from what you don't have. So, and that causes a ton of fatigue. The body, and, and the weakness of the tissue itself. Right, and the body, the body in general requires a whole lot more energy just to get through the day. For right. Athletics, but just to get through the day, it requires so much more effort just to move. And that's why learning how to move better and move more and also position ourselves properly in dance related or uh, type of athletics or even just every day is so important and the biomechanics are so important. Right, absolutely. And there's actually some good evidence that even in people that are completely asymptomatic, so they're not having any problems whatsoever, but they're if just you, hypermobile. But they're just hypermobile. If you look at people who are hypermobile versus people that are not hypermobile, that the people who are hypermobile do have muscle weakness, even when you're looking at people that do not have any symptoms. Yeah. So there's something biomechanically, you know, that happens, and I'm sure we could, you know, talk about it all day long, but that when, you're, when the body is hypermobile, even if they have no symptoms, just because of the way our bodies move, it, it just doesn't, it's not conducive a lot of times for building muscle as much as somebody else. It doesn't seem. But with that being said, I think it's important to also say that there are plenty of people that are hypermobile that can build a lot of muscle, and also a lot of people that are hypermobile that are very stiff. Um, and they might not seem as loose or as bendy, but they um, definitely, you know, are hypermobile they just their muscles have to you know they work in these tight tight spasms to in order to hold their joints together um, right i see that a lot in men and boys probably sure. the biomechanics are so what would you say to somebody who's listening to this and we're talking about you know dance and hypermobility and these at-risk populations 
and what they need to do and, and miss, you know, talking about different athletes that have recognized they're hypermobile and how they're helping themselves. What would you say to them if they're like, wait a minute, this is, this is everything to me. You know, what do I do now? Like this is, you know, everything you're saying is what I've been doing that's wrong and uh, I don't have any pain yet. I'm fine. And I, I think it's also important to say that you are an anesthesiologist and that you did open the Wisconsin Integrative Pain Medicine Specialist uh, in Wisconsin is focusing on chronic pain and fatigue and everything with hypermobility related disorders. So if somebody's listening to this and trying to understand where you're coming from and you've got a dance background and you're also a chronic pain doctor and trying to help these populations and they say, well, I'm fine. I'm fine. Whatever I do is fine. I'm, I'm fine. So, so I think that that's a great place to start because as a dancer myself, I can tell you that all I ever wanted to do when I was a teenager, young adult, all I wanted to do was dance. Dance is my, absolutely my passion. I'm a former uh, ballet dancer. I am a former ballet teacher. And um, I would never tell someone to stop dancing because it's a wonderful way to um, get fabulous exercise. And if it's your passion, it's such a wonderful way to express yourself. And I think that the important thing is to, to know your own body and to be aware of what you can do to help reduce the risk of injury because it is a lot better to prevent injury and to prevent chronic pain than to treat it. Once you are injured or once you have chronic pain, it's a lot harder to treat it. So it's hard to say, um, you know, in terms of what percentage of people are hypermobile that are dancers, but the studies point to around 60 to 90%, depending on the study. So it's a very, very high percentage. But I think that we probably are also using the wrong tool when we're looking at dancers because they are training to be hypermobile. Again, dancers, gymnasts, ice skaters, they are, they are pushing themselves to these, to these extremes. So what I would say is absolutely keep dancing, but you might want to consider starting to look more carefully at your, at your body and paying attention to how your joints function. And I do want to back up a little bit and just explain because you and I have been talking about, even just with each other, about hypermobility for what feels like forever. So to us, it's very natural, but we probably should define what that is. So hypermobile, a, a joint is hypermobile if it has a range of motion that is greater than is expected for that joint. So for example, a knee, I'm going to hold my elbow up here a second because we are the people who are just listening aren't going to be able to see this, but they'll be able to visualize it. There's a webinar but coming up. We should say that. There's a webinar coming up, and so they'll be able to, to see more. But, but, so the, but the arm is, the elbow is supposed to go, you know, from, from straight here, that's, a, that's 180 degrees straight, and then it should bend. If it goes backwards, yeah. that's, that's going into the hypermobile range, and we just talked about the knee in that case. So knees and elbows should go straight, like a straight line, 180 degrees. If it's 185 degrees, that's okay. It has to be more than 10 degrees beyond straight in order for it to be considered hypermobile, at least from the standpoint of the Byton score, which is what we normally use to define if people are hypermobile. That's the, the gold standard at this point in time for defining if someone has what we call generalized joint hypermobility. Yeah. And we're gonna go to this, what's that? I was gonna say, do you wanna go through the Byton score real quick verbally? Sure, we can go through the bite and score real quick. And we're gonna go into this a lot more detail next week. 
well, in 10 days or so when we do the, um, the webinar. Basically, the Biden score is a four bilateral test, meaning that they're right and left, and then one unilateral test. And I'll start with the unilateral test. If you can put the palms of your hands flat on the floor with your feet together and your legs straight, that's a score of one. So that's the first test. Can you have your feet together, your legs straight, and put your palms on the floor? So that's number one. The second one is looking at both knees and elbows. So if you have two knees, you have two elbows. Exactly what I was just saying. Do they go completely straight? Do they go five degrees beyond straight? 10 degrees, 20? Any of those four joints go 10 degrees or more beyond straight. It's one point for each of those. So that's another possible four, one point for each, right? So we have right elbow, left elbow, right knee, left knee. And the question is, do they go completely straight or do they go actually past straight? Okay. If it's more than 10 degrees past straight, one point for each. The Exactly. Yes. That's definitely a hyperextended hyper elbow. Yes. Yes. I wasn't always hyper. That one isn't quite as, ex yeah. yeah. And there was one that I wasn't as much, but now it's quite, but yeah. right. I'm, a, and the, I'm a nine out of nine. And the proper way to measure is with what's called a goniometer. You line it up with the bones and you see how much um, extension there is there. So that's the first five points. Okay. The last four points, again, we're looking at right and left, are can you take your thumb and touch it to your forearm? Yes, exactly, like that. So that's a very good demonstration of, yep. So, so that's points six and seven. Right. Yep, one for each. And then the last point, the lot was again a bilateral test. And it's best if you put your, the palm of your hand on a table when you do this so that you get a more accurate measurement. But the question is, how far can you bend back your fifth finger relative to the metacarpal bones? Yeah, exactly. So you look at the angle between, between uh, your, your metacarpal bone and your first phalanx. And yes, so clearly yours is greater than 90 degrees. So, so, so that's right. So that's your score right there. So that is how we calculate the Byton score. Now, the interesting thing about the Byton score is that over time, we all become less flexible. We become less, our joints are less mobile over time. And so although the Byton score is a very valuable thing and I calculate it on every patient when they come in for their first visit, it's not something that um, as people get older, it's not it, exactly. Exactly. And, and we have to look at, we have to look at the whole entire picture and the new criteria that came out in March goes into great detail about how you actually classify someone as having hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, because there are very specific criteria now that they have for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Also so hypermobility spectrum disorders, which means that there could be you know, somebody that has almost equal symptoms to hypermobile EDS or maybe even another type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or another connective tissue disorder, but they don't fall within the criteria for hypermobile right. EDS uh, or maybe even fit the Byton score completely, even historically, but their symptoms and their issues are equal in severity and should be taken as such. Exactly. Right? Exactly. The categories for those as well. Right, and, that, and that's exactly right. And that's the thing that we really wanna focus on in whether it's in the clinic or now as we're discussing the podcast, we always wanna focus on symptoms. What are the symptoms that a person is having? And in, in the um, getting back to the dancer, they might not be having any symptoms, 
but every single dancer I've ever met wants to dance as well as they possibly can. So I have met some dancers that are so unbelievably hypermobile that when they're at the bar, they're, they're doing pretty well. And as soon as they come into the center and they're no longer holding onto the bar, all of their energy is just going into keeping them upright and they're all over the place. That was by far the hard, I loved the bar, but going into the center to propel myself, right. incredibly hard. Right. And then you move across the floor. You know, when you go to do grand jetés and various different combinations across the floor, if you don't have that control and stability, it's very, very challenging. What I want to really emphasize is that um, you raised an excellent point earlier about people posting things online. And I think that it's, it's extremely important now in this era of um, Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and, and all of these different Twitter you know, people are posting photos of very extreme, crazy positionings that they're doing. And then, you know, young girls, they think, I want to be a dancer, I want to do it, or boys, I want to do that. So then they emulate these postures and may hurt themselves. And it's, it's important because, unfortunately, now we have so much demanding of our attention. And it takes more and more extreme things in order to get people's attention. So what I would tell a young dancer is, don't look at those things. Don't compare yourself to those other people. Don't look at those images. Don't try to copy any of those because number one, you may very seriously hurt yourself. Um, and, and number two, focus on dancing the best that you can with the body that you have. And stability and control are incredibly important things in a dancer. It's not just, can you fling your leg up in the air, but can you make these beautiful movements with your body and make it something that people are going to want to come watch you do. So it's, it's not just, can you do this crazy pose, quick snap a picture and then it's over. So. I think what, I think what you're going, um, what you're saying, I think what just you know, resonates with me, um, both as a, somebody who's a dancer and yoga and also as a daughter that, is now discovering her hypermobility. It's like, mommy, look what I can do. And she can you know, stick her head to her, right. to her, her head without the trauma, or go to splits. And I'm like, no, don't just right. do that. Um, but I think what is important is it's not just about can you do those, but understanding the biomechanics and the physiology and the, and, and the background, if you will, or the biology background to understand why that's not good. Um, from a long-term perspective, but also when you are a competitive athlete, whether it's in dance or you know, these other at-risk populations as we're talking about, why those positions or going into those hyper-extended positions actually make it more difficult for you to succeed and dance as best as possible. And that's where I think the biomechanics and understanding energy transfer and, and how the body works is so fascinating, but also so helpful to help kind of stick the ground and say, you know what, I'm not gonna go there. I'm gonna do this as best as I can to protect my body and learn how to dance and control my body as best as possible so that I can protect it, but also not injure it because that also helps me dance better. And there's a lot of content. We went over a lot, we jumped around a lot, but I think if anything, it's a true testament to what is available to discuss. There's right. information that so many people don't understand 
and need to know, not just within the community that you help and serve or the community that I work with, is that the general population doesn't understand this either. And if we're not focusing solely on labels, but we're focusing on restoring wellness and living well and function and how it relates to hypermobility related conditions uh, or even conditions that are more commonly known such as chronic fatigue, pain, um, from whatever the cause, at the end of the day, the label doesn't matter. Um, what matters also is, you know, my dog's barking in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's important is that, you know, the Restored Wellness podcast is we focus on, which both of you and I fully wholeheartedly agree with about living well and restoring function and not so much the labels. Definitely. I think what's important for the general population is to understand that there are a lot of links that maybe even the mainstream medical community isn't really aware of, um, that there are links to these chronic conditions and maybe some of them have to do with hypermobility from whatever the cause. Um, and that hypermobility is just one of those things that maybe somebody didn't really know that they had or used to have or how that relates at all. And, and uh, so today we're talking about dance and hypermobility and at-risk populations, but it's a true testament to how much we really do have to discuss and most importantly, discuss on how to help people learn to live well and restore function from whatever the label that's causing them to have lost function. Um, so two last questions as we wrap up the webinar is that if you have parents that their child loves dance and whether it's a, a boy or a girl, it doesn't matter. They think, oh no, what do I do now? How do I protect my child? What do I have to do? Does my child have to stop dance? My, my child loves dance. How do I keep them dancing safely? But also, how do I advocate for them in a dance studio where maybe they don't understand or recognize or even just care to acknowledge the risks that are associated with hypermobility? How does a parent allow their child to dance safely, protect them, help them advocate for themselves, but also especially if they're in a studio where it's just maybe just completely dismissed? I think that's an excellent question because you're absolutely right. There is a big variation in different um, studios. It might be, or different uh, you know, uh, gyms. If you're, if you're a gymnast and you're going from, from one gym to a different gym. And I think it's very important to, for a parent to be as involved as you possibly can and to observe what is the culture like? What, how are the teachers working with the, the students? And how are they, you know, honestly, most people that are dancing it won't be a professional career for them. If it does turn out to be a professional career, fabulous. But for most kids that are dancing or young adults, it's something that is a wonderful outlet. It's wonderful for exercise. It's wonderful for artistic expression. It's a fabulous activity to do. It's wonderful for um, you know, a social thing. But you, you want to make sure that you are choosing an environment that is appropriate, appropriate for your child. So if your child, I, I would say to a parent, if your child is you know, extremely competitive and maybe they are um, uh, excelling and they are very uniquely talented, you want to make sure that you do take them to a place where not only are they going to get the level of, I think people are more in tune with getting the level of instruction that's required because you do want to make sure that they are in a place where they're getting really excellent coaching and uh, high level teaching 
teachers are also knowledgeable enough about the body and respecting what the um, dance student would say to the teacher. So for example, your child comes home and they say that they have pain in their hip or something like that. When I told my teacher about it and my teacher dismissed it, well, I think it's important to, you know, then maybe talk to the teacher and find out, you know, did they discuss this with you? You know, and what do you think might be causing it? What do you, a dance teacher is not going to necessarily be able to make the diagnosis, right. but at least they yeah. can watch the child's technique and they can say, well, based on that technique that they're doing, what they should make some modifications. Right. And um, you want to be at a place where they respect the person's body and that they are in tune with the needs of their individual students because each student is going to have different needs depending on what their goals are. For some students, they that's, that's all they want to do ever. But other students say, I want to dance, but I also, school is very important to me and there's other things that I want to do. So it's important that the, that the teachers in that studio be tuned in to their, their students and not just trying to enroll as many students as they possibly can. And um, when they are doing th things like performances and rehearsals and things like that, you know, the schedules are very demanding. And it's difficult with dancers because they are used to experiencing pain. Um, a lot of things that we do are painful. Um, and of course, gymnasts, a lot of things that they do are painful. So it's, it's, it is very challenging distinguishing between what's a normal pain from a sore muscle, or maybe you did a certain variation. You, you know, you're, you're rehearsing and you have a performance coming up in just a couple of days. So you did this variation again and again and again. So you're kind of a little more sore, but it's nothing serious, you know. Um, so there's an important distinction to, to make and to make sure that uh, the teachers do take things seriously. And ideally, a studio also would be working with things like Pilates instructors. And, yeah, I you know, say, I would think com combining it with proper strength training, it, that helps stabilize not only the body in movement, but then counteracts any kind of... Um, hyperextension tendencies, you know, the stronger the muscles, you can train your body to not, I don't hyperextend my knees anymore. Um, they are very, they hyperextend a lot, but just out of complete mind-body practice, control, working out, proprioception, a lot of, a lot of really hard work for many, many years, I don't hyperextend my knees unless I purposely am doing it. Right. You can do the same thing when learning how to do, um, dance or yoga or gymnastics or even on the megaformer machine when I go to my class later today I've learned how to do certain movements without that hyperextension but it's taken a lot of training but you also need strength right proprioception which to me is very much the essence of mind-body control right right and, and we we need to do a whole entire session on proprioception because yeah, that cool. that'll be on the, that'll be the second podcast yes because that's such an important thing the clumsy, the clumsy child you know that, that yeah that was me the one that rolled always rolled the ankles but yes that's to be continued yeah that but so that so that's a really really important topic and i think that you're yeah with that the utilization of things like physical therapy and pilates and knowing that okay if a student needs to to, to rest then that's, that's what they need to do for their body. Now, obviously you have a performance coming up, you, know, you have an understudy, you have to, you know, the, they have to also balance their own needs. But I think parents probably are better judges than they would think of, is this a safe environment for my child? So I would strongly urge parents to be as involved as they possibly can 
in that studio and going in there and seeing, you know, how are, how are the classes done and how, what's the interaction like between the teacher and the various different students? Does the teacher treat all the students as if their bodies are one and the same? Because you can tell just by looking at them that their bodies are different. Right. Dramatically different. Well, also, I think it's important to also pay attention to that. It's not even what's done in the studio that's important and that the teacher in the studio is listening to the parent and saying, hey, look, my child is, has hypermobile tendencies. I don't, I don't want that to be glorified. We need to help protect the child right. against that. But also understanding that what's done in the studio is important, but also what done, what's done at home is important. And that yep. nutrition and sleep and all these things also play into a huge role uh, probably more than we ever thought, um, you know, that's to be continued another time too, that also is important that if, even if all the right things are being done at the studio, but if a child is still, you know, having more tendency to be injured or is still in pain or, um, you know, still having a hard time, that there are other things that we can do that can be done uh, with combination with the right doctor um, and an educated medical professional to help the child understand what might, what might also be causing problems, to help them dance or succeed as successfully as possible, or understand that there's other things that we can do at home to help um, make sure nutrition and, and micronutrients are where they should be. And there's a whole bunch of different things, another topic, another day, that is important that the parents also do at home. It's not just about the studio and what's being taught there. It's also understanding the whole body at home and other things that might be play and finding a medical professional that will help work with you to allow your child to excel uh, and do within reason what is safe for their body because everybody's different but also know that it's not such a black and white thing all the time that there are other things that we can do to help ourselves succeed at the different activities that we may like but safely um, right. and that usually takes a combination approach as you will um, which leads me to my last question is, as a former dancer, as a physician, as somebody that's working in our population, and then since we're specifically talking about dance and hypermobility, what is the one thing that you would say to the dance populations, for somebody that might be a dance studio instructor, owner, um, not really ever paid attention to this, maybe doesn't even want to listen to this because they're like, wait a minute, this is touching on my forte, right. my thing. Right. And I'm not going there and everybody's fine. Um, you know, if you were to tell the dance community, um, population at large, especially those that might be listening that maybe aren't so aware of hypermobility, maybe they don't even know that they have hypermobility, maybe they're a little standoffish and be like, wait a minute, don't mess with my thing. What would you tell them? What's one thing you would say to the dance community, maybe a dance studio owner, uh, about hypermobility and dance and the importance of paying attention to it? Right. I would say that it's one of those things that it's important to be aware of. Keep dancing. Dancing actually is something that it, that is protective because it will keep you strong. And so it's very important actually to keep dancing. Um, but it's also important just to be aware of it so that if you are having problems, say that you're having joint pain, or maybe you're having some other symptoms. You were talking earlier about chronic fatigue, or maybe you're having some uh, symptoms of you're having dizziness or other symptoms that, that you and I know can be often related to hypermobility. So I think it's important just for dancers to be aware that most of the time it's simply the way the bones are aligned and it's something that can be an asset in dance, but other times it's something that can be more serious and is important to be aware of and it's something that isn't as well recognized currently in the medical community as 
as it should be and as it will be. Things are getting better, um, but it's something important for them to be aware of so that they can go on places like EDS Wellness. They can go on your website and get more information. They uh, would then know how to ask the right questions. And then maybe when they go in for their doctor's appointment, they would be a little bit more prepared with information and say, you know, I'm wondering if this possibly is related to these other symptoms that I'm having. That's great. And if they were looking for resources or information more about dance and hypermobility, is there um, somewhere specific that you would send them other than maybe reaching out to you or me or just something, you know, specific is a great resource. We mentioned uh, Lisa Howells from She's right. Got Great uh, YouTube videos that I just right. absolutely love. I could just listen to all day long. But right. is there any one resource that you would maybe tell people to go to? So I would say that, you know, go to the EDS Wellness site. Go to the ballet blog and Perfect Form Physio. Those two sites are both the Lisa Howell sites, the Australian physiotherapist. She's wonderful. Um, I would also say that go to EDS Awareness. And on their site, there's lots of webinars that are you know, great to watch. If you're in Wisconsin, go to the EDS Wisconsin site. There's lots of information there. Um, and also go to the EDS Society. There's lots of you know, information on their site as well. So there's a lot of different places. The focus is a little bit different. With EDS Wellness, I really like the focus that you have because it is on function and on um, doing, like you said, about not focusing so much on the labels, which is something I really try to emphasize in my clinic population because it can be, it can be hard, especially as a young, I have patients that are young, um, young people, they're teenagers, and they already have the, a number of problems. And it can be hard if you start to really kind of be weighed down by these things, but instead focus on function and really think about what can you do? What do you want to be able to do? And that's what I really like about what you do, Kendra, because you do focus on function and living well and that you can live well. You know, everybody has something. Right. Um, and you can live well with, with things. I think sometimes people think, oh my gosh, I have this, I have this, it's the end of the world. And um, I would say that, you know, my life is richer now than it ever has been before, even though I have more medical problems than I've before. <laughs> we won't but, go down the laundry list. Yeah, no, we won't do that. But it's, um, you know, it's life is a journey and it's really, you know, it's important to, to learn from these things and it helps you to grow and it helps you to appreciate the parts of your body that are working. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. And I think if anything, I think it's important to, I think people get very scared that if they are hypermobile, if they have any signs of hypermobile, that means they're immediately classified or that they have a condition. And I think it's also important to recognize that because we're talking and we you know, do talk a lot about hypermobility related disorders, there are people that are asymptomatic. There are right. people that do- They will always be asymptomatic. Right, there are a lot of people that uh, have an actual diagnosed you know, connective tissue disorder related to hypermobility. There are people that you know, maybe have acquired hypermobility and how that relates, you know, um, there's probably a genetic predisposition, but there's a lot in the medical community that, you know, you and I both know that we're just really learning the links to all these things. Maybe people wouldn't realize that they were hypermobile before, but they're more now because of an injury, um, which will be another thing to talk about at another time. Definitely. There's a lot coming out, but most importantly is that aside from all of that, that we can restore function, we can restore wellness, which is essentially the essence of this podcast is restored wellness. It's not all black and white. It's not all you have to stop something. There are ways to come climb out of the spiral, if you will, find wellness. And wellness, I say wellness because it's all about your well-being. It's not just about physical and nutrition. It's, right. it's, you know, we call it the seven pillars of health. 
in health education. And it's all parts of it. And that until you really look at all parts of that, you can't restore your function, restore your wellness, um, but until you really hit all of those. But a lot of times you can find a way to continue the things that you like to do. It might be different and your right. journey there might be different. It might look different, but instead of focusing on what we did before, we're going to focus on what we can do now and how do we get there. Right. And I think that that is a perfect lead in to the other thing that I really try to work with my patients on. And that if I could do one thing differently in my past, when I was dancing, especially is living in the moment. Yeah. And I loved to dance, loved, loved, loved to dance. But so often I was focused on, you know, what's, what's next, what's next, what's next. Yeah. And if I could change one thing, it would be when I was dancing to be even more in the moment and be, be just present. And I think that's what I love so much about Julie Kent is I, I, I was so fortunate to get to see her dance many times. I, I attended many of her performances and, and it was literally uh, watching her do Juliet and Romeo and Juliet would, you would get goosebumps because the, the emotion and that you could just tell that she was just, it was 100%. She was there. It was, she, yeah. it, she gave it her all every single time. And it was just, um, you could just feel that. So I think that's the one lesson too, is to, to live in the moment and it's easy to worry about the future, but it's, it's good to plan for the future, but live in the moment. So that's right. Well, thank you for being on. I can't wait till our next, um, podcast. And we talked, I think we led into a bunch of different things, proprioception, um, restoring function on different things, injury, and how that relates to the presentation of these conditions and, and the links to all of them. So there's a lot to talk about, but thank you for being here. You're very welcome. Thank you. Kendra. All, right. All right. Bye. Bye.